Welcome into this episode of 10 Questions with NBC10 Boston, the podcast. I'm Kwani A. Lunis. The month of May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So as a result, we will be highlighting different people who have contributed to the AAPI community locally. We start first with Trom Nguyen. She is currently the representative out of the 18th Essex District and is the first Vietnamese American woman to be elected to office in the state of Massachusetts. Take a listen to her story. talk about Asian American and Pacific Islander backgrounds, people don't understand that it's not limited to one or two countries, but there are so many different cultures that come from the Asian American community. I mentioned that you are of Vietnamese descent. So for those who don't know, what is your story? (laughs) Well, thanks for this opportunity. I think it is very important, especially for AAPI Heritage Month, to talk about not only where we came from, but but also the immigration history really... um, shows how much of um, diversity we have in our own community. The Asian American community is certainly not a monolith. So for myself, I came to the United States when I was five years old with my family as political refugees in the early um, 90s. And we immigrated right to the Merrimack Valley because we had a sponsor family who was willing to take us in and basically showed um, showed us the ropes. So we landed in um, Lawrence, Massachusetts with basically less than $100 to our name. At that time, it was my um, my father, my mother, and myself, and my younger sister, and later on, uh, my little sister, who you know, Tammy Wynn, she was born here in the U.S., um, but for us as a family of four coming over, it was very difficult. My parents didn't speak a word of English and had to work two to three jobs to make ends meet uh, raise their daughters. And for myself, I had to learn English as well. And I remember those uh, those memories very vividly, really struggling to understand what my teachers were saying, what I, it was a completely new culture. Uh, and also we came in January. And as you can imagine, the weather in January oh, yeah. here was vastly different from, you know, the weather in Vietnam. And so oh, it was... Good. <laughs> just a little. And it is a huge adjustment uh, for us. But I was very thankful for the resources that we received from whether it was Catholic Charities or other community organizations in the area. Um, they helped us uh, adjust to our new life here. And um, I'm very proud to be the very first person in my family to graduate from college and then move on to, to law school. Uh, and after law school, I knew I wanted to give back to the community in some way. So I ended up working as a legal services attorney for Greater Boston Legal Services. And I lived in Boston for um, some time as I was doing that work, helping victims of domestic violence, uh, seniors, veterans, people with disabilities, and new immigrants with their civil legal issues. And that work led me to do some advocacy work um, in policy, whether it was paid family medical leave or earned income tax credit or bilingual education. All of those um, advocacy skills really uh, led me down this path to then uh, run for office in 2018. And I'm very honored and humbled to be representing the 18th Essex District now, which uh, includes the towns of Andover, Boxford, North Andover, and Tewksbury. Thank you for sharing that. And I think a lot of the immigrant experience that people don't understand, especially being a child coming to a foreign land and having to adapt It is essentially what the American dream is made of, but I think we've gotten to a point where people may not understand that. Growing up in a new world, you mentioned that it was a hard experience. What is one of maybe the most vivid memories you have of trying to adapt to life in the U.S.? It was really just seeing my parents how, um, I remember just vividly, 
feeling um, frustrated because I felt my parents' frustration. My dad is a very smart man. He was very hardworking, but he had such a hard time finding work and he had such a hard time expressing himself. And those memories stick with you when he was trying to get paperwork, when he was trying to sign us up for schools. And then even growing up, I mean, people don't, um, you don't know until you go through it that you don't know what you don't know. So for example, going to college, I almost missed the FAFSA deadline because I didn't know that you had to yeah. do that. It, I was the very first in my family to go to college and, you know, just all these steps I had to learn and work with my family on the, the um, things that my children will never have to know because I would be on top of them. And so right. this is the perspective and experience I bring with me when I work on policy at the legislature to say, well, we need to invest in these resources to help because look, when you invest in people, it comes back tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold in terms of the contributions that they make to our communities. What is one thing that you're most proud of when it comes to your Vietnamese culture, whether it's a dish that you enjoy or just a fun fact about Vietnam overall, something that the general public may not have even done the research on to know about? Well, <laughs> I have to talk about food. I actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, coincidentally, I just finished a bowl of pho right before. Oh my goodness, perfect. Uh, I made, uh, and that's a, a very traditional dish for those who don't know. It's uh, basically uh, beef noodle soup, and mm -hmm. you put a lot of different things in there, uh, and it's very popular. And for me, the food really is the highlight of my culture. But in addition to that, um, it's really the resiliency of the people. You know, we've gone through crises. We understand what it means to overcome challenges, to start anew. And for um, and for that reason, many of um, Vietnamese Americans, we do uh, take a lot of risk and because we've lost it all. So for us to, you know, to take the risk and um, to put ourselves out there is something that uh, has really been inspiring to see how the Vietnamese American community has really grown uh, throughout, not only in Massachusetts, but throughout the country. Where do you think we can get the best bowl of pho in Boston? Well, I don't want it to be considered oh, an endorsement. I don't want that there's at least a few suggestions. What areas would you suggest people to go to to try to find some? Oh, absolutely. You you need to go to Fields Corner in Dorchester. I mean, I typically go there too, uh, you know, when I don't have, want to make pho at home or well, yeah. back when we could get together and meet up right, with right. friends. So I highly suggest that. I think that's my colleague, um, Representative Miranda's district, and we still yeah. need to do a, maybe a food tour of some sort. Maybe we'll pull you in. Oh, that's a good idea. I love that. <laughs> and you kind of alluded to this in your answer, but I definitely want to formally ask, what was your inspiration? You went to undergrad at Tufts University, but decided to go back to law school. Why did you decide to continue your education and get your JD? So truth be told, I never thought I was ever going to be a lawyer. That was just never my plan. <laughs> uh, from when I, I remember, from my very first memory, I think I've always wanted to be a doctor. And the reason for this is that, uh, for that is this, my father, um, he wanted to go to medical school and he was in his first year in Vietnam and then the war happened and uh, because he was an only child, he couldn't continue with college. So he had to leave to join the military. And that was how we ended up um, coming over here as political refugees because he served in the South Vietnam um, military alongside US soldiers during the Vietnam War. And after the war happened, um, he was put into a re-education camp for eight years under uh, communist rule. And so because of all that, my dad was never able to fulfill his dream of becoming a doctor. So he said, well, one of my kids is going to become a doctor. <laughs> and <laughs> as a 
this child. And as the most studious, and I have, I think my sisters would agree that I am uh, the most studious out of all of us. Uh, he said, well, I think that's your calling. And my whole life, I thought, I want to tell people, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a pediatrician to help children. Mm -hmm. And then I came to college and realized, wow, I am terrible. <laughs> at labs, at science courses. <laughs> and also I get queasy around blood. So that was oh, not going to work out very well. <laughs> and so I told, well, I continue to tell a lot of college students now too, that it is okay to find yourself, to take that time to find yourself during college. Many of us are, you know, we think we're going to do something and then it's just as important to find out what you're good at and what you're not good at. And so during my time in college, I was able to, um, after I decided that, you know, med school was not going to be for me. I gave myself the opportunity to really explore what was out there. What are all the different majors uh, and started taking various classes and ended up um, taking uh, American studies and sociology. And those classes really stood out to me because I really wanted to understand uh, institutions, systems, and how they work, and how they intersect with race, and how people in America function as a society. And that really intrigued me as I um, studied, you know, critical race theory and um, understanding how uh, society works. And I, I guess I was very lucky in that one of my um, uh, counsel, well, advisors said, well, I don't think medicine's for you, but have you thought about law school? Yeah. And she ended up getting me an internship with Greater Boston Legal Services, and it opened up a whole new world. I have to say, I've never known a lawyer in my real life. Like, you know, in real life, all I knew were what I saw on TV, whether it's people in suits or people representing, um, uh, you know, doing criminal work in the in the courtroom. But I didn't realize that there's a whole world of civ uh, civil legal aid with attorneys, uh, working for a nonprofit, helping the most vulnerable people with various issues, whether it's employment, housing, public benefits, you name it. And they do such good work, not only in representing the people, but working on policy. And that really opened up my eyes. And I've realized, wow, this is something that I really want to pursue. And I decided to then go to law school. But I actually took two years off um, between undergrad and law school. And then I highly recommend that to folks because I was able to work for the Census Bureau, working on the Census 2010, and really got to know the issues on the ground, which which grounded me to do um, the work that I wanted to do when I went back to finally decide to go back to school. And you mentioned a good point. You mentioned that you hadn't even known lawyers. You didn't know a lawyer in real life. So had you even seen a lawyer that looked like you, even maybe when you were studying for school? There, I will have to say there aren't many lawyers of color, particularly here. I was very lucky in that I uh, I went to Northeastern University and we had a co-op program. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah, and I had yeah. a co-op in Hawaii. So I went out to Hawaii and I saw judges and lawyers who looked like me and people in higher office who looked at me and it really changed my perspective. And then so when I went back here, I purposely sought out um, attorneys of color to learn from them, to learn about, you know, what they went through, uh, what sort of career decisions I should be thinking about. And uh, I have to say, I was also very lucky in that I ended up at Greater Boston Legal Services, where the diversity is actually higher than in some many other institutions. And I was able to learn from um, many uh, AAPI attorneys, as well as other attorneys of color, and just frankly, people who are very committed to, um, to helping others. And uh, that really shaped my values and shape how I look at policy now as a legislator. Through your experiences, whether it be in law school or even now working 
in the state of Massachusetts. How have you seen or why have you seen that representation is so important? Well, I like to say that representation is way more than a buzzword or the next sexy thing. It is here to stay because we all recognize that uh, representation and diversity matter because people need to see what they want to be. And that's number one. The other thing is that policy is more rounded when you have different voices at the table to talk about different experiences and how policy can affect different communities so differently. And we've seen this firsthand right now as we're dealing with the pandemic and trying to recover from the pandemic, whether it is the testing or the vaccination now, or just how it impacts different communities so differently and how the pandemic has really exacerbated many of the issues that we've seen in our society and how we need a different approach for every um, community out there. And what does that mean to have people at the table to, to talk about these differences and work through this, these differences so that we don't leave anyone behind? Last month, we saw six women of Asian, Asian American women get murdered in the Atlanta area during what is now considered a hate crime. You, as a result, in addition to the collaboration with A.G. Healy, were able to start working on an anti-hate bill here in Massachusetts. Why do you think it has taken so long or taken a tragedy for the world essentially to wake up and use the hashtag stop Asian hate and really maybe put momentum behind this movement? Um, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, it was um, we started the bill we, uh, way before the incident happened okay. because you remember, um, well, there have been studies that show that um, anti-Asian hate and violence has increased 150% in the last 12 to 13 months. So this is not a new issue. Okay. Um, but even before that, the U.S. has a long troubling history of racism, whether it is the Chinese massacre in the 1800s or the Chinese Exclusion Act or the Japanese internment camps, uh, or even the murder of Vincent Chin, where the perpetrators were able to walk away with just a couple of thousand dollars in fines and and um, probation, and that was it. And so in terms of the, um, the rise in anti-hate and violence in since the start of the pandemic. It's really unfortunate that it started with all the scapegoating and misinformation that started at the very top and trickled down to so many people who are, were frankly irresponsible with their rhetoric and essentially putting a target on the backs of all of those of Asian descent. Because people, you know, when you start calling it the China flu, many people can't recognize a Vietnamese person versus a Chinese person versus a Cambodian person. So essentially all people of Asian descent have a target on our backs. And we knew that this was going to happen right when all of this started back um, in uh, March of 2020, right in front of the steps of uh, the state house. We had a press conference back then, and it was beautiful to see so many electeds, particularly electeds of color, all coming together to stand in solidarity to say, we denounce this sort of rhetoric. We know it's going to lead to violence and we need to we need to stop it now. And lo and behold, here we are. It culminated in that mass murder with eight deaths, six of whom, as you said, are uh, women of Asian descent. And it is so heartbreaking to see that it takes that tragedy for people to now pay attention to all the um, misinformation that's been out there against Asian Americans for so long. You know, whether it is um, the microaggressions we see every day from you know folks telling us to go back to where you came from. I mean, that happened to me right in front of the Suffolk courthouse 
right down the street from the state house when I was practicing. I was coming out of the courtroom, uh, the courthouse with my client who uh, was a new Vietnamese immigrant and I was helping her with a restraining order. And I was trying to speak with her and explain to her in Vietnamese. And this person drove by on his bike and said, get the F out of my country. You don't belong here. These are the things that we see and experience every single day. And I am thrilled to see that the media is now paying attention. And I want to continue to work on this hate crimes bill to increase accountability and make sure that we are calling hate crimes out for what they are because they're not just crimes against the individual they're meant to terrorize entire communities people are fearful people we want to signal to them that these things are not acceptable anywhere in the commonwealth or anywhere in our country and so we need to take these crimes seriously and you mentioned a little bit of experiences that you've had as a, a legislator of color, so to speak. But how have the, the last few years been? How have you adapted to this new world of law? Not new to you, but, you know. <laughs> oh, it is very new. I don't think I tell everyone this. I don't think there's anything out there that prepares you to be a legislator because there's no playbook. And even if there is a playbook, typically it's not a playbook for someone who looks like me, right? Because to most people, I'm not a quote unquote, traditional candidate. And so for many of us, particularly uh, people of color, women of color, we need to figure out what works for us. And it's a huge learning curve, both as um, in our role as a representative outside in our community representing the people, but also in terms of understanding how the state house works and working with colleagues to develop that understanding to make sure that we um, have the tools that we need to get things done. And I have to say, I've been very lucky um, to have uh, colleagues that I could lean on to call on when I need help. Uh, and also other electeds of color who have been so supportive from when I first started running up until now. And I'm just very thankful for all the support that I've had along the way. And in terms of the work at the State House, um, it has really been. Um, a huge learning experience, just understanding how different the districts are. I think that that has uh, really been the highlight of this work is getting to know my colleagues and getting to know just what other um, parts of the state, um, what they're doing and how different they are. Like I was stunned when I learned that in Western Massachusetts, they don't even have broadband. Uh, and these are the issues that we need to discuss and talk about and really debate because when you're talking about policy, we need to make sure that all of those things and all of those differences are accounted for. Um, and and um, there's so much more work to be done. And I feel like as we are um, working remotely, it's gotten even harder because we don't get the chance to see each other at the state house to bounce ideas off one another. So we have to be a lot more intentional in seeking out input. And that's why you've been seeing a lot of virtual hearings and even listening sessions, because the listening sessions is where we learn of how um, they're just vastly different our commonwealth is and how we can better work together to address those issues. Yeah, you make a great point. I think the pandemic definitely highlighted a lot of the issues that a lot of the communities that you may represent had before. You mentioned the virtual meetings. Have you noticed a, maybe an increase in attendance for those meetings as a result? Yes, we've seen an increase um, in participation and also um, we're, find, we're finding more creative ways to get the information out to folks as well, especially because now we're not going to community meetings or events where we can let people know what's going on. So a lot of us are hosting town halls, we're doing Q&As, we're doing virtual coffee hours, and so we're finding 
various ways to engage our constituents and um, just the general public. And so I know that um, I'm really excited that the speaker has assigned a whole new committee to look at accessibility of our uh, website and how to make sure that we continue to be available and accessible to people. Um, I'm hopeful that these virtual hearings will continue because we know a lot more people are tuning in. I mean, like this series, it's made the world smaller. We can book anyone on here. <laughs> and actually, that's the beauty of this. So now I've been on panels with people across the globe, across the country, yeah. and it just makes it so much easier. Uh, and so I I think that this is not going away anytime yeah. soon. It's for the better. Yes. <laughs> but work aside, I love to ask this question because a lot of times we find our identities, whether it's in our culture or in our jobs. So for you, what do you do outside of work and maybe how do you define yourself when it's not related to working in the state house. Uh, well, before all the, the before the pandemic, of course, I love to travel. I think most of us <laughs> miss yeah, that because we're being able to be out there. Uh, and um, I love playing tennis. I love cooking. Uh, actually, one of the things that I've been able to do a lot more uh, than I ever did before was to cook because now we're working at home and I save so many hours commuting. Yeah. Uh, so I'm able to have all these fancy meals that my <laughs> colleagues tease me about. <laughs> but cooking is my way of uh, relax, relaxing and trying to take my mind off of work. And of course, my pets are my, um, you know, my world. And so I've been able to spend a lot more time with them uh, since the pandemic. You said you co-opted in Hawaii, but what is another place aside from that flex? What is another place that you enjoyed when you traveled there? <laughs> uh, when I was traveling, well, I, we, um, one of the biggest trips that we had before the uh, pandemic was I went to my sister's, my middle sister's wedding in the Dominican Republic, and it was an all-inclusive, and I was like, you know what? I would do anything to go back there now and just not do anything. Just right, actually read a book and, you know, enjoy the nice weather. And so, uh, I mean, there's a lot to look forward to. But one of the things that we're doing that's uh, somewhat exciting is we're looking for an RV because we, you know, we're still hesitant to um, to be on airplanes. So we think maybe we can do a road trip and just get an RV with our dogs and go, you know, cross country or something. But okay. we all need to have plans to look forward to <laughs> enjoyed this conversation with Representative Trump Win and you've been coming back week after week, then please remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already, write us a review, and as always, share it with a friend. You can also check out the video on NBC10Boston.com slash 10 questions. Thank you so much for listening.